Yeah. All of the editions, by the way, they have the Arabic and the, Jew, and the Jewish, uh, in, like in the Hebrew script. The, Rav Kapach also has it uh, in his... So, um, okay. So, I don't know how much time we have to spend on the, uh, on the intro intro, meaning the pre-intro. Breeze through it. Uh, but he, you know, where he sort of introduces him, you know, the honorific parts, you know, where he's, but basically this is a, this, you know, to get into the context of it, either kind of praising each other and he's praising the, the Chachamim of Yemen and there he, he's responding to their, uh, to their, uh, uh, praise of him and in a very, in a humble way. Uh, I'm not sure how many, um, uh, how much of that we have to go through, even though it's very nice and it's very classy, um. How he, but, but we, I don't think we have to spend too much time on it. I would, I would jump to the actual c- content of the uh, of the letter, uh, where which in mind it has an aleph where it starts with the actual content of the letter where he says, "Umnam mashe zichar tomi inyan zeh moshel beretzteman." I don't know what it is in, in English. Yes. Yeah, no, I don't. In Arabic, it's. Very brief explanation of what this is exactly. Oh, it's, it's going to explain itself. Okay. No, it's, it's going to explain itself. I mean, these these are letters of the Rambam that he wrote to different communities that turned to him with, oh. you know, with different questions, and you know, they're great sources of like machshava. It's sort of like, but they're self-contained units. So a lot of this is going to be a lot of Teman in particular. So the the Chachamim of Yemen that wrote to the Rambam, and he wrote back to them. Specifically, he wrote it in Arabic because he wanted the letter to be something that was disseminated among the populace because he thought that it was something that everybody should be familiar with and read, as opposed to other letters that he wrote that were really just for the other other rabbis. He didn't necessarily have to write it in a, in a language that everyone could understand, but this it was very important to him that everybody understand. And you know, he's going to mention the uh, uh, the context of the letter, what he's responding to. We don't ever have. We don't usually have like the letter that he received that he was responding to. Sometimes we do. Here, as far as I know, we don't. We just know what, how the Rambam is responding. So but we can infer from what he says uh, what the content of the letter was. So it says, So it says, So he's talking about a certain leader in Yemen who uh, tried to force all of the uh, all of the Jews to convert? Okay, and he's and he's talking about how troubling it is, and a, a, a lot of what he's going to talk about here is the attempts to proselytize the Jews and how the Jews should understand the basis of the validity of their religion, right? And that's why he thought it was so important that it be something that the entire community be able to read and understand because. He wants everybody to get this message, right? It's, it's really something that the community has to understand, not just the Chachamim. He's very poetic, but he's talking about all of the different places in the world at that time that there was Shmad decreed on the Jews, meaning that there was religious persecution and they were being pressured to give up their religion and adopt uh, Islam, mainly, um, you know, most of the time it was. At that time, so they're being pressured on all sides from different uh, proselytizing forces or or uh, compulsion to convert. So he's he's basically he's starting out the letter by with empathy. Okay, 
is the point. He's not really, he hasn't addressed the problem yet, but basically saying that we're so troubled by it, it's so disturbing, it's so upsetting and, and terrible, and, and this is what the Navi talks about when, uh, you know, uh, when he uh, prays for, uh, for God to have mercy on the Jewish people because we're a small nation. He said the Mashiach is coming soon, obviously, 800 years ago, 900 years ago. Man, all of what, you know, these are uh, the point. Mm-hmm. No, uh, anytime you hear Hevle Mashiach, mm-hmm. we all assume that that means that it's coming soon. But is that actually what it means? Or does it just mean that this is the part of the process that... Yeah, probably. That, that probably Meaning is. that could be, Hevle Mashiach could be 2,000 years, really, you know? Yeah. In every generation, after 9-11, everyone said it was Hevle Mashiach. Anytime that there's yeah. some kind of yeah. a... October 7th. Right, tumult in the world, everybody kind of feels that way. That you know they're they're looking for that, but um, yeah, that you know, and, yeah. Whenever there's some kind of a tragic or uh, tumultuous situation for the Jewish people, I think that that's that's one of the reactions. And but the point is that right now we're saying uh, This is what the Chachamim prayed to Hashem that they shouldn't have to see that. And when the Nevi'im the, the, the would describe them, they were describing them with great fear and trepidation. You know and. When he described them, when he's talking about all the ter- terrible things that are going to happen, you know, in, in, the, in leading up to the, to the redemption that Yishaya was saying that, you know, how he's gripped with fear and trembling and all that. That's from the that's from what Bilam said. But the point of the Rambam is is you know here is to first of all empathize with the tzorot that they're going through. That's not really the substance of the letter, but it's uh, you know. It, but when you read the Rambam's letters, I think there's also Derech Eretz to learn from it. In other words, he starts out by praising right. the people who sent it to him and, and, and talking about how great they are and what he's heard about them. We didn't really read through that part because it's, it, it would take a long time and it's all written in, 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 in very poetically. But he, uh, and, but, and, and how he humbly kind of deflects whatever praise was directed towards him. And then that he empathizes with that with them and gives them encouragement and basically says, you know, see this as Chevle Mashiach that you know it's they it's it really is horrific and it really is terrible. Not downplaying how terrible it is, saying that Nevim said how terrible this is, but that they should know that it's paving the way to something better. And that encouragement is the so you know part of when an important thing to whenever you're addressing a question is to look at the the context. We like that term. That's a, that's the word of the day. And, uh, and to see what the people are going through and not just to take the, you know, not just to answer an intellectual answer disconnected from the complexities of the reality that the person is facing, but to, you know, to, to see where they're coming from and to answer with that in mind. I think that's, that's an important principle. Aisha. Well, those nivot about Bilam are about Akhrit Ayamim. And then, what does this person mean exactly? Who will live? Who can survive the uh, the uh, judgment of God? I think it's talking about isn't isn't that the uh, what what it's talking about in the in Acharit Hayamim? It's talking about like the uh, all of the nations and how they're going to vigamu adeoved, you know, right, right, all of the destruction leading up to the Mashiach and who can. Who is able to survive this, like, 
justice, this misumo, uh, I think there is, is referring to the, you know, the, the fact that God is bringing justice to bear upon all the people, meaning who's going to be able to survive it. So he's trying to let them know that this is not something that he's indifferent to. And there's a significance to, to it from the Gula perspective. And they shouldn't, so they shouldn't feel that it is in some way, uh, they shouldn't lose hope, but they also shouldn't think that he's indifferent to what they're going through. That even the Nevi'im said it was going to be terrible and, and, and that it was going to be, you know, it wasn't going to be easy. It's and, so fascinating to me how powerful a tradition we have of a major cataclysmic event prior to the coming of Mashiach. It's like, it's like so understood. It's such a, it's so understood. And yet every single time a cataclysmic event happens, everybody says this is it and then it doesn't happen. Well. It, it has like a, it has a, it is like rooted in Chazal and also in Tanakh. Right. It's just a fascinating, it's just a fascinating like random nivoire. Meaning like. Why is it random? I, I feel like it's a little bit out of the blue because it's talking about, you know, a, like, Any major social upheaval evil is going to come with... Yeah, if you think about the times of Mashiach as being sort of revolutionary, ideologically, socially, philosophically, spiritually, it's going to be like a real transformation. of America. There's always resistance. There's always resistance. There's always, not, not, you know... Right, there's always... First of all, yeah, to lay the groundwork for people to be receptive to change. Usually the biggest changes happen during a time of great tumult because people are... People's sense of stability, sense of, uh, you know, sense of, uh, uh, I mean, Government yeah. Government power after a pandemic. You know, like, something big has to happen that people are willing to get. Right, when, when things are shaken up, so that's when it's possible to step in and restore the stability with something else, Christ. basically. So yeah, we, we crisis. We need to be in a to, to make the prediction right. that there will be a major cataclysm. Well, for two reasons. I, I mean, I would say for two reasons. I would say on one hand. After the Holocaust. I know, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I would like, say the there's two things. I doubt there was anything as brutal as the Shoah in the history of the Jewish people. Yeah, probably that, that not. Gave the, that gave the, the, the conscience of the world the ability to say, okay, Jews can have a Shoah. Yeah, for like, for like, for like, like a few months. For, for actually one day. For one day. Before they tried to destroy. Barely. <laughs> but but the, the, uh, the same thing, I mean, there's two reasons. One is because times of social unrest and lack of stability lend themselves to other kinds of changes occurring because things are not, uh, you know, following their normal course. The, the course has been disturbed. So now there's a chance to, uh, to reorganize in, in different ways. And I think that's, that's one thing. The other aspect is that whenever you introduce some kind of revolutionary change into society, there's always some kind of a pushback, some kind of a resistance, some kind of a reaction. It's never a simple... But even a person who tries to implement in their own life significant change has their own inner resistance to the change, and it's very difficult. And so, when a doctor says, "Oh, you have diabetes," will you then change course in your life? Even then, you might even deny then, it or wait yeah, to it. ask another doctor. The opportunity for change happens only after, uh, like a, like a bad. There's event. some there's some process of denial, resistance. Uh, uh, not, you know, and also, like we, the situation, it depends how, how much it affects you. We also we used as the example have, like type two diabetes. They, they they don't do well because they're so habituated and they don't really feel the effect. Mm. It's kind of like they don't believe in numbers. They believe how they feel. Mm. It's like somebody who. Like, talking about diabetes in particular. Yeah, like a smoker that like feels like. Okay. It's hard. Like they're it's hard for them to breathe. 
depends on the smoker, but they might be more more um, like, likely to, to change versus like a diabetic that's been eating unhealthily for 30 years. He doesn't necessarily immediately feel the, the, the effects. So well, they end up losing. Oh, so basically, I was under the impression like, wow, these new water brilliant. Like they pr predicted that the Holocaust would come for I come out of Medina, and now you're just saying like, oh, it's. Well, I'm no, saying no that I think, I think, but what is it, you know, the Navi is still um, giving an insight that yeah. is true and, yeah. you know, and, and therefore is saying that when there is a time of disturbance, social upheaval and so on, it, it, it lends itself to, you know, the opportunity to build back in a, in a, in a, in a way that's superior to what you had before. So, you know, to respond in a way that is... Better and I mean whatever happened, you know, all the things that have happened in the past couple of months in many ways have changed elements of the way that Israelis think and Jews think about their place in the world, about you know about their relationship to one another, the and and the Haredim and the Chilonim. You know, there's been a lot of there's been like a seismic uh, shift because of everything that happened. Whether it will be sustained, whether it will be carried through, what shape it will take next. That's going to be up to the people who uh, take the control of that process and direct it. But that's, that's kind of the idea. It's an opportunity, but what's going to be done with the opportunity is going to be dependent on the people. So that's, that's, that's I think, you know, so that's the opening of the Rambam. So the turn to Israel is pretty remarkable, though. That, that's a little bit really hard to predict. Like the fact that we would be kicked out yeah, and no, of course. never return. Yeah, of yeah, course. that's even more grounded. I'm talking just about the idea. And again, you know, even that. The fact, also, the fact that you have the nevoah that says you will return also keeps your eye open to an opportunity. Right, I was just going to say that, yeah. That's what I was going to say. I mean, that's, yeah. you could, in, in a way, it's, plant, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because yeah. it's putting well, in the mind. To an extent, but it's still... The it's Jewish still people never... You don't, you don't, it, you don't have... You're wanting it to be something magical. Part of the part of the idea of the of the uh, you know part of the argument when people are like Jews are not are colonizers and they're settlers and all that and it's like no actually we ever since we left our land every single day three times a day we're we're trying yeah. to go, we're praying to go back we never actually relinquished our right to the land since the time that we left it's not like people who got, were conquered and they left and then. A few, like Amon says hundreds of years later, but actually we want that land back to Yiftach. It's, it's not like that. It's a situation of where we've been wanting that land for thousands of years. And so it wasn't like it just came up yesterday. So it certainly serves to keep our eye on the prize in terms of land. Now, that the fact that some people's emunah has been uh, shaken by the terrible uh, persecutions that the Jews have been suffering from. In other words, it makes people feel like, uh, start to question their faith, question their trust in God, question their belief that they see these terrible things happening. And some haven't. Daniel That Daniel already spoke about this. That when there's lots of tzorot, a lot of people are going to leave the religion. Or they're going to be shaken in their, uh, in their convictions. Daniel and Navi, that we learned this book last year. Oh, you weren't with us last year. Oh, that's why I don't know. That's why you don't know who it is. 
You know, that's that you can't you can't use that as so an excuse. You were expected to review all the materials from the last yeah, trip and before listen, you came to this one. You, you didn't listen to the you didn't listen to all that eight hour recordings I've done. Actually, those were those were good classes. Yeah, that was actually re- those were good classes on Daniel. Those were very interesting classes. Well, I thought we said it wasn't Nivuot, it was Ruach HaKodesh. It was Ruach HaKodesh. The Rambam has it as Ruach HaKodesh, but we talked about that whole issue. That was one of the big uh, uh, insights of the trip was the difference between Ruach HaKodesh and, and Nivuot. Is that his own moniker, Don Daniel? Is that there? It's probably translated from Arabic from like, you know, so it's hard to know exactly what he said in Arabic. To cur- and here he doesn't have the Arabic right next to the Hebrew. And then Daniel, he basically says that there are going to be people who lose their faith Particularly the Shmadim and people that will keep their faith. Yeah. That's what he, uh, he, he says that. I mean, you know, the way we learned Daniel, when we learned it, we learned it more according to basically the Abarbanel's commentary and the more modern Pirushim that have used a tremendous amount of historical material to clarify exactly what Daniel was referring to because there's so much historical material now that when you read the Nivod of Daniel, it's like literally... Yeah. Moment by yeah. moment, like talking about the times of the through the times of the Maccabee, you know. When whereas the 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 way that a lot of the earlier Mefarshim, including the Rambam, read the Nivot of Daniel, they're talking about like the Romans and and much later than uh, you know and, and the uh, much later in history uh, Nivot. So it, it, there's one of the difficulties with Daniel is what period of time he's actually talking about, and it fits so beautifully well with the time of this, uh, you know, the Greeks and the. Uh, uh, and that whole period, once you line it up with the historical material that we, we have available, it's hard to deny that that's what he's talking about. But most of the Rishonim read it as talking about the Romans and thereafter. So uh, anyway, um, so, so he says... So the fact that the people, some people won't, won't be in doubt and some people will be in doubt because they view, and this is the part of what the Rambam is going to talk about here, is the, the role of political power in religion um, and, and how people relate to those things. Many people will be like purified, so there's very these psukim are very like all the psukim. A lot of the psukim, I wouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them in Daniel are like that very vague and sort of double speak and hard to follow. And as we worked through it back then, it gets, we, harder, it gets harder and harder. Well, the beginning is all in Aramaic, so the trans in the beginning it's the translation that's hard, and then when you get to the actual nivuot, especially the latter part of the book, the content gets really really hard. Um, even some of the people who will stay faithful to God in the first phase of you know the suffering later on will, will experience even worse things and start having doubts. And all that will be uh, left is, is just a little bit. That even among those who understand, will, people will, will, will fall, will fail. So the point is that the times will bring about so much doubt and questioning about, uh, in terms of the faith in God, 
that it will, you know, you could definitely see that have, having happened in the Holocaust, for example. But look at what happened, you know, in the, the destruction of the, of the Beit HaMikdash and in the wake of that and the rise of Christianity and the rise of Islam. All of these religions that built empires and basically said, look, we're obviously the ones favored by God because we're the ones with the power and you guys are uh, lowly, weak, uh, diaspora, wandering Jews that are in an inferior position everywhere you live. So, you know, doesn't that say something about whose side God is on? And, you know, you're going to see that it, it certainly doesn't seem that God is with the Jewish people. What happened? And that was one of the big arguments of the church. And one of the reasons I've, I've mentioned many times before, I think, that, you know, the Catholic Church never wanted to recognize the state of Israel because the existence of the state of Israel is extremely disturbing to the Catholic Church because one of its main <laughs> points of argument always was that it is that the Jews were condemned to be a stateless people wandering across the earth in exile because they didn't accept Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they, therefore they deserve their fate of suffering and persecution because of what they did. And, you know, and, and, and that's a proof to the truth of the, you know, of the church. So, the, the, the so when, so when, the, when, when, when the Jews came back, so it, it took them a long time to even be able to acknowledge Israel existed as a country because they, they didn't want to recognize it because uh, uh, it was a, and I, I don't remember when, when the Pope finally, finally came here, but it took, it took them a long time because even though the Catholic Church owns a, a lot of land in, in, in Israel, but um, they didn't want to acknowledge the state because it was an affront to their... 1993. So it was, oh, was that what it was? Um, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, it was an affront to their beliefs. It's like Yeshayahu Leibowitz once said that uh, the greatest, the most disturbing thing for Christians around the world is that Jews go about, their, they talk about the Jews all the time in their religion, but Jews never once talk about anything about them. <laughs> yeah, you know, like... They had their religion rose up. They had Jesus, and like we just kept doing the same things that we did before, and like it's not a part of our religious consciousness at all. And they're like the Jews, the Jews. yeah. So it's like it just like it didn't phase us at all. Like that's the biggest affront to them. You know, there's probably some truth to that. Anyway, you should teach it mean to everyone, not just it's not just for the people who are the. Uh, who are receiving this letter, but you have to t- teach to everybody. So that they can make up whatever they've lost in their emunah. And they should strengthen in their soul the, 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 the truth. And what, what's beautiful about this is the Rambam is going to present to us uh, the, all the reasons and the bases for, for our emunah and the Torah. Basically as the, as the true religion. That's, that's the, the key point of the, um, and why we shouldn't be taken in by those who try to convince us otherwise. He says, uh, That this is the true Torah that was given to us by the greatest of all the prophets before and after who separated us from all the nations. That we were chosen by Hashem from all the nations. This wasn't because we were worthy of it. Because our forefathers 
already had knowledge of God and served God. When it became clear our superiority over the other nations due to the Torah that we had, because of its because of its contents and its Starea seemingly refers to the way of life and Inyanea refers to the ideas, right? When it became clear that we were of a superior nature, everybody wanted to destroy us because of the jealousy and, their, and the wickedness. Right? They wanted to destroy us through violence. Nobody can argue with Hashem, but they wanted to. Meaning that what was it that they saw that the root of anti-Semitism is a sense that there is some, that the Jewish person has a certain power. Right? That there's, a, there's something superior about the Jewish person. And that the Jewish people have some abilities, some, what, what, all the libels about Jews, oh, they control the media, they control the money, they control this. It's that they have some kind of a power to pull the strings of the world that, uh, you know, behind the scenes and nobody else can see it. And really, their, their real strength and power is not in the material, uh, you know, they're, they're interpreting in terms of the, the material world, but the real strength and power is, is in the Torah, basically, that civilized us and educated us and, and, and elevated us. And they see that, and from a, uh, from a desire to deny that or eliminate that, they feel intimidated by that, and they, you know, they want to destroy us, physically to destroy us, because we're, we represent a threat to them, because what we, what we, are, what we embody to them is, uh, uh, you know, is... Uh, uh, puts them in an inferior position. Let's put that way. Right? Now, the, the, so the Rambam goes on, he says, That from the time the Torah was revealed, there was no king, strong, powerful king or evil person who arose to power, who didn't place his number one priority the, uh, you know, he says, Kol mitzvotav, the goal of all of his commandments, to, dist- to, uh, to invalidate our, to contradict our Torah, meaning using the physical means to destroy it, like the Haman approach to destroying Judaism, meaning if you eliminate the Jews physically, then also their ideology dies with them. So he says the first approach, the first way that anti-Semites try to, they detect, they sense this, that the Torah gives a superiority to the Jews. They don't know what that superiority is. So they, they think about it in some kind of magical way or in terms of a political, they try to explain it in political terms or in, uh, or in financial terms or in, or in supernatural terms. There's something devilish about the Jew whatever it was that they believe, um, there's something superior about the Jew that they find threatening. So what do they want to do? They want to destroy the Jew in order to, in order to remove that from the world. So that's, that's the first idea that he, uh, uh, that, that he introduces. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that even to this. 
like after so much study, like intellectuals, they finally come to the conclusion that anti-Semitism is founded on like it's just based on the Torah. It's like it's like an attempt to rid the world of the Torah, and like. I've heard, I've heard people like spend a lifetime studying the concept of anti-Semitism, and this is the conclusion they come to. Mm-hmm. Like literally what they're about to say. Yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah, it's what it's it's these values that they represent. And if you think about it in any political context, since you like politics, since you if you think about it in political context, really what Haman said and what Paro said essentially the same thing. That the Jews I I'm talking about us, but you know, we you know what, what, whatever uh, Whatever, whatever, um, whatever nation we found ourselves in, we never were really thought of as a full, fully members of that nation. We're always suspected as seeing ourselves as superior to them and sort of like elitists. That's like every anti, anti-Semitic leader always has that same characterization of the Jews. From Paro, was, you know, in Paro's case, there were a lot, of indica- a lot of reasons he thought that. You know, basically, Yosef created an elitist class. The Jews were in an elitist class. They, they had their own land. They were the only people there that had their own land. And they had their own, you know, they were financially independent. And they, were, and they, were, they had their separate neighborhood in Goshen. And they were... They basically had the uh, the benefits of the Kohanim of uh, of Mitzrayim for and in the beginning when it was just Yosef's family, when it was just Yosef's family in the beginning, it was uh, not a big deal. But once it became uh, millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people, it's very very similar to like Ben Gurion with the Kolel uh, thing. It was like yeah, when it's like fifteen twenty people or fifty people, okay, no problem. You don't have to go to the army and you can be an elite class. Now it's hundreds of thousands of people. It doesn't, you know, and that's it's the same that's what. In America, it's a couple people yeah. are fine. Like, right. We'll right. You know, that's like, you know, probably, uh, probably Lapid is going to say that. It becomes, so like, in, in, no, that was, that was not Moshe Rabbein. Yeah, that's what he's going to say. Yeah. One time there, I forget what was going on one time, but like, you know, obviously his father was like a real, even more like much, much, much more anti-religious than, than he is. He's more like, he doesn't really say anything. But, right, but there, there was something going on and he said, I searched through my house so I could find a Sidur to pray for them. Like, just to make sure that you don't think he had a Sidur handy. <laughs> he had to mention that he... Yeah. He'll be Anyway, his, the point is that the, the, the same thing with Haman. What's the, that he, the Jews see themselves as a superior class. They don't follow the laws of the kingdom. They don't, uh, they're not really full citizens. They have, they have other loyalties. What, right, what, are the, what are the anti-Semites in America say? Oh, they're, really, they're all secret Zionists who care more about Israel. They don't really, they're not really Americans. They're not really loyal to them. It's true. Hitler, same thing about the Jews. It's true. This biblical morality to the world that's destroying the world. Like yeah. he literally was like said the quiet part out loud. Like, yeah, yeah I hate your Torah. Yeah. I want. Well, he actually, yeah, he was the most direct about it because he was taking Nietzsche's ideas to the next uh, logical step. Um, and the uh, and, and so the Rambam is saying that 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 sense that Jews hold themselves superior, and the sense that there is something about them that 
they're successful. They're, like, even that famous quote from Mark Twain about how the Jews survive, has survived everything and has been, you know, has flourished no matter what, you know, despite all the persecutions and all the nations disappearing. There's something about the Jew that is uh, inexplicable, that he always rises up. And so, of course, a mind that is thinking in mystical terms or supernatural terms will think there's something devilish or demonic about them. Or if the person is thinking in political terms, they'll think that they're politically connected and pulling the, controlling the media. What, what, it doesn't matter. The point is there's, always, there's a sense of the superiority of the Jew and they want to destroy it. That's the first type. The first type are the people who just confront it directly, just want to kill the Jews. The Rambam is saying. Yeah. Right, the Harvard uh, people. What do they say? This is gay. Miss, I think. I don't think she's married. Yeah, we, we haven't figured that out. Yeah, we don't know if, that's a, if it's a description or a last, last it name. Might be we, Mr. Gay. Yeah, we don't we know. We can't jump to We don't want to assume. Description <laughs> 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 so anyway, Oh, we like the Parsi. They try to overpower the religion, not with swords, but with their arguments and their disputes and their machlokot that they try to sow doubt or undermine the principles of the Torah intellectually. Right. This is the like the the Yevanim in Chanukah are the best example. They tried to impose. The Parsim and their shachmat. That's what he's talking about. The, what's his name? Yosian. Shachmat. Shachmat. I love this guy. I love. I love acting. Yeah, his accent is very very. He's the most imitated person. We should invite him for Shabbat. Yeah, he actually goes to shul. He talk, he's pre, I think he's pretty traditional because he's like, oh, I was in Beit Knesset and blah, blah, blah. He, he talks about it all the time. He, lo- he loves to make a big deal. He says he's chiloni, but, he, but I saw him giving a speech in a shul. Like, uh, they had a video of it. I think he's like um, Shomer Masora. I don't think he's yeah, no, Tati. I think he's, think he's, yeah. he's traditional. I th- I'm, you know. He's like a typical Mashadi. how complicated it is. Anyway, so it says, Neither approach to try to destroy us will work. So we don't have to worry about any of them succeeding, ultimately. Okay? So the, it's, it's weird yeah. hearing this from Rambam because it's like he's usually so concise in his Mishatara. Like you don't hear him. No, like, this is written for the Hamonam. Right. He's writing it to inspire them. He's already like repetitive over and over yeah. using adjectives and he's like. His letters are a different style because first of all. I, I almost sorry. can't believe it's him. Yeah. No, this is one oh, that this is him. This is a perfect Pasuk he's quoting. So the whole Hashem is the Hamonam. 
But there's two things. There's there's and kolashon takum. Meaning even the language, the arguments. Yeah. He says that even the arguments will fail. The rabbi in the beginning was focusing in on the on the sensitivity and the the fact that he's trying to um, like give them the, the people telling them to give it to the people. Hamai, yeah. Right. So he's he's appealing to their emotional side. And like it's, look, look at, it's almost exaggerated. It's rhetoric. It's, like, it's a rhetoric. Yeah, but he's he's like he's trying to give chizuk to people who are really losing their. I know they are hard, but also like see the long pic- the big picture. Right. And so he's putting it in perspective. saying, like, look, there's people who always have been against us. The reason why they're against us is not because they're superior. It's actually because we are. And because they want to eliminate us and destroy us because they... But, but they'll never succeed. Because of that. But they, they won't succeed because Hashem has promised in the Nebuah that, ne- that Judaism will never be eliminated neither by the sword nor by the tongue. All right? So, it's, so he's giving them... He's tr- because nobody wants to put their money on a losing horse. You know, it's like he's trying to tell them, like, it's, you shouldn't doubt that the Torah will be eternal. I remember one time, one of, the, one of uh, my teachers was asked about the Karaim or about the, uh, you know, how do you know the Karaim are not right? How do you know that the Torah of is true? You know, and, and maybe the Karaim are right and we have to read the text and, and, and interpret it without the Torah of And he gave a, a good answer. I never forgot. He said, because the Navi says, and we're all operating with Torah Shavichtav, right? The Navi says, Lo Yamush, not that, no, I was thinking the other one, right? It will never be lost from your mouth. And according to the, according to the Karaim, the tradition was lost and they, re, they you know, revitalized it in, you know, uh, the ninth century or whatever it was. Right? Meaning the original Baitosim and Tzadokim of the times of the Mishnah aren't the same people yeah, as the Karaim. Right? They disappeared. Right? It was a new movement. So they, it can't be the real one because real one, because real Torah could never have been lost. The only tradition that's unbroken is the Torah Shabbat tradition. There was no non-Torah Shabbat tradition that was unbroken. So going by following the Torah Shabbat says the Torah Shabbat is true. Anyway. Um, so, so, so the, uh, where was I? Okay. They all, they, both sides think that they can possibly destroy it. And that they can, they can uh, uh, uproot its, uh, its foundations uh, down, to the, uh, down to, the, to, the, to, the, to home, like to the... Uh, to the depths. No matter how much they increase their efforts, it's still going to remain as it was before. That the the truth is going to mock them and laugh at them on their attempt. Because they're so foolish, the the weakness of their mind that they think that they're going to succeed in this uh, endeavor. So yeah, you're right. There's a lot of rhetoric here. He's talking smack, you know. It's like uh, he's trying to give them encouragement. It must be that they were converting. No, these are Temani Jews. But it must be oh. like he's trying to bring them back. No, right? some people were teetering on, that's, that's the whole point. Some people were really starting to question, you know, maybe, you know, what are, we're, we're, an right. ab- we're an abandoned people. Maybe they're right. You know, they're succeeding. God is with them. Maybe they really do have something. You know, and so, so he's trying to tell them. This is from the beginning of Tehillim. Right? Yeah. 
So Hashem is going to mock those who want to throw off the uh, uh, throw off the uh, yoke and uh, and the ropes. Hine lo sanu negoim umenusim mishtei akitot ha'elek kol yemei memshalteno uktzat yemei galuteno. So um, one second. What is, is he, I thought he said something more about that pasuk, but I guess not. Let me see. Maybe this one. Okay, so anyway, yeah, so the, the point that he's trying to say is this has been a constant feature of Jewish life from the beginning, that we have people who are trying to uh, defeat us and that God mocks them and laughs at them for their attempts to throw off the uh, rope, so to speak. In other words, to throw off the yoke of Hashem's kingship and of, uh, and of the uh, Jewish people. That Hashem So this is very interesting. Now he's, he's going to talk about uh, uh, the, the history of religion. Another group came up. They tried to combine. They tried to combine the approach: um, uh, physical destruction of the Jews combined with uh, combined with the uh, theological arguments. Where's the example of that? He's going to tell you. They thought this was going to be a stronger approach to eliminate the Jewish people. Wait, wait, what's this um, combining. Physical strength with the arguments. Yeah. So they decided to claim prophecy and to say that we have a prophecy that compete because the Greeks didn't do that. The, the, the Babylonians didn't try to say we have a prophecy to compete with the Torah. But what, what was the first religion that tried to do that? The Christian religion, right? The Christianity tried to do that. So, um, so, they would try to replace the Torah with, it, with a new Torah to, to uh, substitute. And say, this is also from God, it's a replacement Torah. Because now you're going to have a problem. A contradictory new Torah comes out and gets published, and which one is going to be, uh, going to be accepted? They're both attributed to the same God. So it's very interesting. His interpret he has the most cynical interpretation of Christianity. That basically his interpretation of it is that basically they just wanted to destroy Judaism. You know? It's so, probably right. So they introduced this new religion with the intent of destroying Judaism. Because there's no there's no law. And right, and right, because basically it doesn't make any demands on the people. Right. And uh, and then both of them would basically fade away and the point was just to make make way for freedom from any kind of religion. And if you look at historically now, two thousand years later, basically that's yeah. that's what happened. Basically it eliminated all religion and made whatever's left of religion is just kind of like cute uh, right. trees with sparkly stuff on it and guys wearing red caps and giving out presents. Yeah. That's all that's left. But I mean, for most people. Yeah. For even, most people. Even Judaism at least assimilated especially now in, in great great numbers. Yeah, like, true. Mostly into Christianity. Like we're not assimilating into Islam. I don't think they assimilate into the religion of Christianity but into the culture, yeah. Yeah. I mean into the idea of not having any No, and not having anything. Any mitzvah, yeah. No. Yeah, true. So it worked. Yeah. So 
וכשילם מזה ישתדל בעניין שירוג הוא עצמו ושונאו. So he says, a person who can't succeed in destroying his, his, his enemy will be happy to dis- that both of them be destroyed. Right? In other words, he says, if, it's not gonna, if you're not going to be destroyed, if I can't destroy you, then I'd rather we both be destroyed than have to live with your existence. Right? So the idea was that he's saying that Christianity was engineered to, uh, self, right, to self-destruct both religions. It was like a, a suicide bomber of, of religions. Okay? Um, that's, now, I think, I think that what he's talking about in this, um, in this par- paragraph is probably Christianity, meaning St. Paul's version of the actual religion of Christianity as opposed to Jesus, the, because that, he talks about him in the next, in the next uh, paragraph. Here he might be talking about, you know, the founders of the actual religion of, uh, uh, of Christianity itself. But um, we'll see if he means to... If he means that or not. One second. No, because then he says the first person was Yoshua and Otsuri. So I guess he's, he's, he's applying it to, to, to all of them. Okay. So, so he says, Utchilat Mishe Matzad Zeadat Aya Yeshua Anotsuri, Shechuk Atzamot, may his bones be crushed. That's, a, that's like the opposite of Allah Vashalom, I guess. Yeah. So. Uh, so he was a Jew, but even though his father was a Goy, he's telling you, you know, the, but we call him a Mamzer just to insult him. He basically convinced people that he had been sent to clarify doubts about the Torah. So what he did was he claimed to be one who was coming to interpret the Torah and be the Mashiach, but actually he, he, uh, he developed an interpretation of the Torah that undermined it completely. And to erase all of its warnings, meaning all the negative commandments, the Fima Shikiven. Before he got too strong among the nation, the Chachamim understood what he was trying to do. They did what he deserved to. They did to him what he deserved. Right? So that, by the way, most of the rabbis, um, most of the, uh, like, most of the rabbis, when they talk about Christianity, Oh, no, I'm saying from the, from the period of the Rishonim, like, own the fact that, yeah, we, we killed them, you know? Right. Like, they don't say, no, it was the Romans, actually, the Jews were innocent, why blaming us, we didn't do it, you know? There's a Gemara in, in the, uh, there's a Yushalmi, and there's also Gemara in Sanhedrin that were taken out by the censors that straight out say that, you know, the, the Jews killed them, and they, uh, the Sanhedrin, yeah, and that they were happy, you know, it's not like, uh, now there's a question about, there's a, one issue that the Ramban actually mentioned in the disputation, which is that chronologically, the Jesus that the Gemara is talking about seems like he lived like 200 years prior to the Jesus that they're talking about. So whether it was the same person or not is not 100% clear, but... Did we, did we uh, nail him to a cross? That, I don't think... I, I, it doesn't say that they did that in the, in the Gemara, but... Oh, it was, it was a or something, no? Yeah, some other... Some other um, okay. So, uh, so he's learning this from a pasuk in Daniel. Because there's going to be a person. Daniel said there's going to be a person from uh, among the 
uh, immoral people of Israel and their heretics who's going to try to destroy the Torah by claiming prophecy. And he's going to get himself into uh, great matters, saying that he's a Mashiach. And that Hashem is going to undermine him. That uh, children of the wicked of your people will, raise, will rise up to establish a vision and they will fail. Later on, so see, this is how the... It's very interesting. I, I have to do more research into it. Um, he's, there, his rendition of the history of Christianity which would fit also with the timeline that the Ramban says that Jesus lived earlier, is that later on, that later on a religion came out and was attributed to him. Right? Meaning that he himself didn't actually develop the religion. But I think even today they, the Gospels were written, you know, maybe a hundred years after, after he died, something like that. Right? Christianity is more about Paul than about Jesus. Right. He says that... Um, he doesn't, uh, he himself didn't mean to bring this particular religion to, uh, to the world. It wasn't his, it wasn't his intent, but uh, uh, it was created later and attributed to him based on his teachings. Okay? Um, it didn't really affect the Jews. They didn't really get drawn after Christianity at that point. Because they saw the contradiction in his words. Because anyway, at the time that he lived, he failed. And by the time his religion came out, it was already that the boat, you know, that, that ship had already sailed for them. So the, um, so that's his history of Christianity, which is very interesting. And, uh, so this is the Muslim, right? So the crazy man who was, the, who was uh, talking about Muhammad, right? So he, uh, he followed the same thing except and he, he's very um, cagey about what he'll say about Muhammad because he lived in Muslim countries, you know, and he was communicating with people in Muslim countries. So he didn't want... He, didn't, he wouldn't openly... Well, he, he doesn't say who it was. He's like, then a crazy guy came who opened the way and wanted, uh, he wanted power and he wanted people to serve him uh, as is well known. It's like, uh, he, there's a lot of plausible deniability in there. We don't know which crazy, maybe he's talking about uh, any false messiah that rose up. You know, but everybody, you know from the context he's talking about. Uh, it's interesting that the distinguishing feature he's is that he's a, it's a religion. Of he wants melucha, yeah. yeah. The, the new piece that Jesus didn't have anything about Melucha. And like, I don't know the Quran well, you probably know it very well, but like, it sounds like conquest is like a, a very focused... It's a core of, value. It's a core value yeah. of the Quran itself. Yeah, and of the, and of the culture. Yeah. yeah. And the Quran is a manifestation of Arab culture, which is very much into claiming... Yeah, conquest and, and war and battle and a lot of the stories about Muhammad are about his conquests of conquests of other armies, conquests of land and women. All the things that are not really associated with Navi in our religion. But um, this is one of my favorite parts where he talks about this. He says all of their efforts were to create a religion that was going to be similar to our Torah. They wanted to imitate it. Okay? Only a foolish person, a naive person, is going to be fooled into thinking that 
um, the a, an artificial an artificial handiwork is similar to the handiwork of God. Only a person who doesn't really know how to evaluate, who doesn't really have a knowledge of the two of them, is going to be full. He's like, the, the other religions are as similar to Judaism as a statue is similar to a person. Right? From far away, it looks similar. Right, when you look at the externals, you're going to say this looks the same. You know, it has the right shape, it has the right limbs, it has the right, you know, whatever. But... Um, but when you look beneath the surface, they're not comparable. Because, meaning, inside the person is all the biological systems, organs, blood vessels, all the stuff that's happening, and inside the, the statue is just more dead material, wood, metal, or whatever. The wise person who knows the inner nature of both, yeda. There's nothing inside the tzelem. It's just a piece of rock. Only there's an outside shape. Right? right? That's why it's such a good analogy, right? Because you look in the body of a person. You can make a mannequin that looks like a person. You, sometimes you walk by a story like, oh, is that a person? Oh, no, it's just a mannequin. Right? Sometimes they're very convincing. Sometimes or those wax museum um, uh, uh, figures, you know? They look really real. But if you look inside, there's nothing going on in there. Whereas a person has cells and, 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 and different bodily systems that are, you know, that are functioning all the time. He's talking about like the blood vessels, the muscles, the nerves, all these things. So in other words, when you look beneath the surface in a body of a human being, you're going to see the complex anatomy, physiology, all these things. A fool that doesn't really know, you hear this, people say it all the time, all religions are basically the same. It's all just about loving each other. Every religion has things you're not allowed to do and things you're supposed to do or allowed to do. You have rituals in the Torah Hashem. And you also have in the other one. The Torah of Hashem commands you to do things and tells you not to do things and promises good and bad outcomes. They all do that. Meaning, on the superficially, they look the same. It's religion the same. And if you, if you go beneath the surface, you see all the chokhmah. Everything is 
every mitzvah that you examine in the Torah, you will see without fail that it has elements that bring about human perfection. And removes things that hold us back from development. It gives us perfection of character, virtues of character and virtues of the mind. It works both for the average person on their level and for the most advanced person on their level. And through the Torah, the social life is going to be excellent. That it ensures for, for the material good and well-being of humankind. And the next is intellectual perfection, gaining. So having an ideal social, physical life and having an intellectual life that's enriching and, and, and fulfilling. And... And he says, When you look at the other religions, there's no inner thing. It's just an imitation. Whoever made it just did it to aggrandize himself. Like he, as if he's another prophet. Anybody who really grasps it and studies it realizes it. And he becomes a, 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 a laughing stock. Right? Just like when a monkey does things that a person does, like there are all these videos that, you know, my kids like to watch of a, of a monkey playing on a cell phone. You know, a monkey running with a lunchbox. Wow, look, it's just like a person. You know, a monkey dialing the phone. I don't know. They have like, uh, yeah, like... Uh, all, all these different things that they have the monkey do, and you're like, oh, that's so funny. The monkey's taking a shower. You know, they have, he has like the water thing. And so like people laugh at that because you know that the monkey is not a person, but he's doing something on the outside that looks like what a person does. So if you just describe the behavior of the monkey, it sounds like a human behavior, but you know that under, underlying that is an animal mind and psyche, not a human one. So the Rambam is saying only a person who penetrates beneath the surface of the religion will be able to see the difference between Judaism and the other religions because they're deliberately designed to look similar to Judaism. They're imitations of Judaism. Judaism was obviously first. And they're set up in a way that, lent, that, that allows the superficial observer, just like a mannequin, you know, to see, oh, wow, that's pretty much the same as Judaism. I mean, they have a day of rest. They go to church. You know, they have holidays. There are things they're not allowed to do. They have Lent. They have, I don't know, they have Ramadan. You know, they have foods that they don't eat. In the case of Islam, you know, they have things that they don't eat, things that they are supposed to do, rituals, a pilgrimage, you know, oh yeah, just like Judaism. You know, but the, and the truth of the matter is, I could say it as somebody, I'm not any, by any means expert in, in, definitely not in Islam, but I've studied it a bit and... Uh, one of the things that a lot of people who, in Islam in particular, Christianity doesn't bear that much resemblance to religious Judaism because it doesn't have halakha. You know, it's not a halakha based. So I think that for most Jews, Christianity really seems like a different religion, but you'll hear a lot of Jews say Judaism and Islam are so similar. They're so close as religions. You'll hear Jews say that a lot of times. 
Whereas they won't usually say that about Christianity because Christianity is not a halakha-based religion. It's a church-based religion. They don't have like shacharit that you can say at home. Everything occurs in the, within the, uh, in the church. So the, um, whereas Islam has, you know, sharia and, you know, a sort of halakha that they, that they observe. Don't they have a concept though of reading um, like Bible and Psalms and... They do. The, the Christians? Yeah. yeah, but they don't have like a structure of life of halakha. You know, yeah, it's different. No, not halakhic, but yeah. it's, it's not, that's not necessarily tied to the church. Right. Yeah, no, they do, but it's not like an obligation, as far as I know, like, it's not like an obligation, like, person like, oh, I have to do this, uh, you know, each day. It seems like it is cultural. Like, you know, yeah, they do read the Bible and stuff. Yeah, no, they do. It's a religious ritual. It's, yeah, that's le- it's less among Catholic. It's more among other, other ones. But, um, but, the, uh, but in, in Islam, one of the things that a lot of Muslims will say is, just reading the Quran, you will see that it is from God because it's such an amazing book that only God could write such an amazing book as the Quran. That's one of the things that they say. And of course, if you read it and then say that it's not really that amazing, they'll say, well, that's because you didn't read it in Arabic. So if you read it in Arabic, you would see that only a great, only God himself could have written such an amazing book. Right? That's a very subjective type of a claim to make. I'm not really sure how you evaluate that. I know that from speaking to people who know Arabic well, that it's, uh, it is a very beautiful Arabic and it's a very beautiful poetry. I've only read it in translation because my Arabic is not even, like, I know a few words. I don't know barely anything. So... Um, it, but I, I've read it in translation and I've read like a lot of stuff in Islamic law. And one of the things that I've noticed, it really has borne out the Rambam's idea that the Torah is, there is a, to every mitzvah, a depth to it and a structure to it. And like we were talking about earlier today, the klalim, the principles of the halakha and how they fit together and how they work together to accomplish whatever the purpose of the mitzvah is, you don't have that in Islam at all. First of all, most commandments in Islam are not explicit commandments. Like the Quran is not written the way the Torah is with, and the Lord said, you shall do this or you shall not do that. It's all by inference and, and reference and allusion in, in the text. It's not clearly laid out. So you have about, so many right, about almost every law, you'll have somebody who disagrees and says it's not really law. I'm, I'm sure they could, they could, but it, it isn't the same. Because, and, that's, and that's really what the Rambam is saying. Because within the tradition of Judaism, there's nobody who says like, there's no such thing as shaking a lulav. Like in Islam, there's, there are things like that. Like there are some people who say, this is completely fine. And some people say it's completely prohibited to extremes. Like yeah. some people say, there's no such prohibition as that. And the other one says, there is a prohibition. And it, Right. right. There's a baseline framework, and then within that framework, you can sometimes have a disagreement about when, where, how. They have like from one extreme to another. Some people have this restriction and say it's uh, totally prohibited, and some people say, oh, oh actually, right. it's totally fine. Yeah. So they, so they, they, they it's from a, my understanding of it. It was like it's a the Quran is consistent, but subject to interpretation. And then after Muhammad, there was a bunch of different people, and there's machlokot about where who got the real tradition. Right, so they have, what they have is they, they have like, they have the Quran, they have, four, they have four schools, right, or five, 
And they, they have yeah, like... Do they like Sufis also? No, not Sufis. Sufis are part of one of the schools. They, the schools are law schools. Sufis are like Mikubali. Yeah. yeah. So like, or Hasidim. Um, the, the, the thing in, in, in Sharia, what happened was like this. You have the Quran and you have the Hadith, yeah, which are yeah. like very, very important to, because they are like Mishnayot. Yeah. yeah. I thought they were Midrashim. No, they're some, some are stories. But most of them are like, most of them are like Mishnayot, meaning they're like, they ask the prophet, you know, can I do this or can I do that? And he said yes or no or the other, right? Right. So, so, so they, there are many, many, many of them. And so there are collections that are considered indisputable and some that are more, or that are less reliable. There are those that are considered like 100% they're authentic, some that are less, some that are not at all. There are different collections. And so the, the different schools of law had different principles by which they would derive basically new applications of Sharia and things like that. But the problem is that there isn't a baseline of even agreed upon mitzvot that everyone agrees. I thought the first, there, the first there are, schism was... Between who would be... Shia and Sunni. Yeah, right. that, that's based off of who would succeed Muhammad, right? Yeah, that was different. That was... The, the law schools evolved later. Yeah, there was, there was Ali and then there was somebody else. Right, the non-member of Muhammad's yeah. Right. Right. And, and, uh, and then they started the fighting right away. But, but the law schools evolved later as a way to apply their Sharia to, to new situations. The thing with, the, with, the, with it is that they don't have, like, there's no, like, you would never have a Rambam of Sharia. There's no, like, sense of, oh, there's a principle and there's a, per- here is the law, here is the source of the commandment and here are the different components and here are the different details and how they all organize together. Because on every detail, there are, di- there are different views. And even on the existence of a particular commandment, there's debates whether it exists or not. Because the, the law is very fluid. It's not clear. In the uh, in the uh, in the books themselves, so that it doesn't. So the, the Rambam is right. I mean, I'm sure he probably was so exposed who can give to a it. Fatwa or fatwa? That's or who does that? Like, like whoever is, their legal is there a body that does like in Ireland? There's a is there yeah. Is there like well, the, the Shias are right. Shias have a, so one of the big arguments between Sunni and Shia is that Shia have a belief in like Das Torah. That like the the whoever is the ayatollah whoever is like the an imam has like a certain power to be goes there certain things and right. things like that and the Sunni they don't have that they don't believe in that kind of an idea it has to be according to they, you can't be mechadesh uh, new things and they, they, it's a in in certain ways it's similar in terms of the the way that their system tried to stabilize itself by limiting innovation and things like that but they don't have there's no like system to it. It's not a system. It's, it's very disjointed and disconnected. And so that's what the Rambam is saying. He's like, yes, it's true they have rituals and this, but it's not like a, wis- a designed wisdom where the components fit together into some kind of a beautiful uh, totality that you can look at and say, wow, this is an incredible mitzvah. I see how all the components co- come together and you know what the source is and, and what the purpose is. It, it's not a, it, they don't have that. They don't have like a chokhmah and a beauty to their system of laws. That's something that you can't just invent. You can't just make, you can't, there's no beauty to American law either. 
There's beauty to the values underlying American law, but all American law is, is case law and more case law and, case, and statutes and case law. It's not like somebody's going to sit down and say, wow, look at how beautifully these statutes coalesce into an understanding of this great, profound idea. Yeah, you know, America's not a religion. Like, right, but meaning in the realm of law, our, because our law is oh, our law designed is in a way of... To a deeper uh, sense of consciousness of yeah. your creator. Yeah, so it has a, it has that. Whereas Islam doesn't have that kind of a, they don't have that kind of an. Oh, you should sit and like, uh, and that there's like a a passion to sit and study the the, the beauty of the uh, uh, of their Sharia. It, it's not like that kind of a, that kind of a religion. So the Rambam is right about that. It's something that imitates superficially the idea of uh, rituals and restrictions, but it doesn't have a depth to it and a wisdom to it that you could see underneath the surface. And the, the, in that sense, the Rambam is, is, uh, you know, is, is totally on point. And the, the, it's, one of the other things that the, Ram, the Rambam says in the Moran Vuchim and is something that, you, that we've, we've talked about in other contexts is that, he, but he says something very like almost scandalous in the Moran Vuchim, which is he says, when you see a religion that is perp- that is designed for no purpose other than to bring people to a knowledge of God and to perfect both their mind and their character and their well-being to organize a society around the Yad Hashem. That is a divine law. That's the sign that it's a divine law. Meaning, like intrinsic to the Torah, that that almost like some people think it's scandalous because it almost sounds like well, there could be another one then, mm-hmm. right? But I don't think he means that. He's trying to say to you that the signature feature of, a, of, of the Torah is that it, it has no human agenda behind it. It only has a divine agenda and it's only organized to bring people closer to God without any other purpose behind it. And a Navi, and he mentions like Nevi'im that are, that are mentioned in the Tanakh who were false Nevi'im who were committing adultery with their followers' wives, you know, like, which is a very, very typical... Uh, thing in these false prophet movements. They always have scandals, some kind of sexual scandals in, in, in David Koresh, all these people that are become, uh, but they, they don't know that that is. It's, it's all like the hierarchical... Yeah. Uh, with a Waco guy? Yeah. yeah. They all end up being these Mormon cult leader guys. They all end up having those kind of scandals because they're religious. They're, ultimately, their, their goal is for personal, some kind of a personal gratification. And that's the sign of a, of, a, of a religious leader or of a religious movement that's not really there to bring the people closer to God. Yeah. What was the and, recent one in Syracuse? Which one? That was the recent one, I can't remember the name of the guy. Syracuse. Well, you kind of see that in our own religion, unfortunately. Yeah. These, uh, cult yeah, no, there are. Rabbis that unfortunately lose their power. Yeah, no, for sure. It happens in our in our religion too. But in in the um, an, a person a person who the Rambam is saying that one of the ways you can see that the Torah is uh, comes from God is that its whole purpose and everything about it is only organized around bringing people closer to God. It doesn't have any other. It doesn't aggrandize any person. The Torah doesn't aggrandize any person. And Moshe Rabbeinu himself said, "I wish every Jew could be a navi, and you wouldn't need me." You know, basically, I wish every, every Jew could become a prophet on their own. That's the attitude of a person who really only cares about the development of the people. He's not interested in putting himself on any kind of pedestal. Right, the the yeah, Torah in itself that. has zero ulterior motive other than the truth of Hashem. Right. Yeah. 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 Y
that was right. It's focused on they, they. It's focused on it on Muhammad as like as the key figure, and it was and it and dominance and empire are like part very much a part of the uh, political dominance and empire very much part of the religious uh, movement itself. Well, it it makes people the priests and Jesus into worshipped figures. It doesn't lead a person towards knowledge of God. You don't perfect your mind by being a Christian. You actually have to dismantle parts of it. The original authors of the New Testament had a self-interest in... Yeah, but it's, the Rambam is saying more than that. It's not just the self-interest. It's the fact that the Torah actually clearly educates people to think and become knowledgeable and become and reflect and grow their minds and, and uh, actualize their potential to know God. No other religion actually does that. There's no like program in Islam where they teach you how to develop your character and your mind to know God. There's nothing like that in Christianity either. There are rituals. There are things you're allowed to do and not to do. There, but there's no, there's no program that, is, that enables a person. Whereas we have a program and a system of mitzvot and a discipline and a learning of Torah. It's supposed to uh, bring us to that point. That's, that's the, what the Rambam is, is saying. And uh, I think we should, uh, we can continue tomorrow because it's getting late and we want to make sure we, yeah, well, it's a long, it's actually pretty long. Yeah, I didn't realize how long it was. Yeah, I mean,